Hello! Welcome back to Riding Off the Deep End. I'm Jeffrey Edwards. And I'm Mary Thaler. And this is our third episode in which we read excerpts of each other's work. Right, so an attempt to give readers or listeners a better idea of how we write and not just what we write. <laughs> <laughs> so let's jump right in. So, uh, I am going to then skip over a, a little bit, but it is very lovely and important to plot and character, and just go to this, um, these, a couple of paragraphs that come a few pages later. So, here we go. And so on that particular evening, at the end of September, 1941, I found myself in the kitchen, puttering around, just doing small tasks, a quick sweep of the kitchen floor, already clean, chopping up carrots and potatoes for the evening meal and thinking about life. Several larger tasks pestered my conscience. I was vaguely conscious of the light streaming in the window, the light that had made me fall in love with this house, Nathan's ancestral house, his now that both his parents were gone. Outside, although the day was declining, the light seemed to pool and collect like water into the nooks and crannies of the old farm. It wasn't the barking of the dogs that alerted me. Quite the contrary. The farmhouse normally was immersed in a minutia of sounds, both small and large, from the lazy droning of the omnipresent flies that swept in through the windows and the half-open door on their way to other destinations, to the braying and lowing of the larger farm animals, the dogs with their mix of barking and whining, and the minor key clucking of the chickens. What struck me at that moment was the lull, the momentary lapse of these different sounds, all except the buzz of what appeared to be a single fly looking for somewhere to land. So I just love the tension in this, actually, and it doesn't seem like it should be tense. It's just a description. I mean, she's doing some tasks in the kitchen, um, you've painted a vision of a barnyard for us um, that's very evocative, and yet, um, and yet, by the time it ends, there's been the the tension has tightened, and we have just that one sound, the buzz of the fly, which is a tense sound. I mean, mm -hmm. it uh, um, I, an I obsessive sound, right? Yes, yeah. yeah, it is. It is making the the sound of of ten, the tension of waiting. Uh, if it had a sound, it would sound like a fly. But there's also something very cool doing here because, of course, what happens next, what I don't read, but what happens in the next paragraph, is that she goes outside and she sees um, visitors have come to the farm, and in fact, these visitors are looking for a place to stay. Sure. They're hiding from the Germans because yeah. they're Jewish refugees. Right? Mm -hmm. so. They're they're in trouble and they need a place to stay. And so I realized that this this is mirrored by the fly looking for a place to land. We start with the fly looking for a place to land with this zzz of tension, and then we move on to um, very naturally move into these other people humans who are also looking for a place to land. So it's a love. It's a small example of a kind of. Uh, mirroring effect that you can get in writing, but I think a very lovely one. So as you've gathered, that's a story about um, uh, a, a Jewish family trying to escape from Nazi. Yeah. And they also have a young girl with them who's got cerebral palsy. So okay. the issue of disability in relation to the Nazi occupation is another element that forms yeah. part of this story. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. 
So this is these are excerpts from her ongoing um, uh, work, in work in progress. In progress. Yeah, yes, that's what they that's call a the work in way. progress <laughs> called the Shell Midden that she's writing on, which is a historical story about mm-hmm. a ship that is exploring the northern Arctic. Mm-hmm. In 1875. Yeah. So it's a story about this expedition and the crew and the different different problems that they encountered. But the interesting thing about the story is that Mary's taken a point of view of telling the story through the voice of the dogs. Yeah, they used used, uh, dog sleds to get around once they were up in the Arctic. And those dogs had to be purchased in Greenland before they left. Yeah, so it makes for an interesting viewpoint on this story, uh, which I kind of, I really enjoy, although I haven't read the whole thing yet, because it's still, I only got to read one because excerpt. it's not finished. <laughs> <laughs> I did get to pick two segments to read, and they're both about the dogs, because I found that particularly compelling as, yeah. a, as a reading exercise. Um, so I'll, I'll just read the first one, and then I'll comment on it. Um, The two brindled animals from Pervin had clawed out a space for themselves on the forecastle and were standing nose to tail, waiting. The smaller one's legs were slightly splayed. The ship's movement made him feel as if his paws didn't belong to him. Because he had a habit of flicking his ears... When his mind was racing, even when there was nothing to hear, the hunter who owned them had named him Erkasaut, Erkasaut, which means thought. His ears were moving now, straining above the creak of cordage. He saw hands come onto the deck, followed by his children. Charlie had his fingers twisted in the thick wool of his father's jacket, and Avgo, her arms piled with seal meat, seemed just as anxious to stick close. The ship was as strange to them as it was to Erkar Saut, as it was to Erkar Saut, who in his whole life had only ever been in his hunter's umiak, whose gunwales had moved so close and silent above the water's surface that you could hear the fresh water trickling through the grounded flows and spreading into a pool where the ice touched the sea. So there's a kind of an atmosphere to this excerpt that I really like. And also, of course, we, we hear about this naming of the dog as a function of the... Of the of the fact that his mind is fleet and quick mm-hmm. and moves. And, and so we have this idea of, of uh, even from the outside, because the hunter names him Erkasaut. Not, mm-hmm. So it's not just the dog's own name for himself, but it's yeah. the hunter's perception as well. Yeah. Um, so I, I really like that. You get this, you get a sense of the Arctic from the story. You get a sense of the animals. You get a sense of the relationship between um, the hunter, the owner, I guess, mm-hmm. of the dogs, and the dogs themselves. Um, 
We have this word umiak, which I think we discussed last time, which apparently... It is a word for boat, but as distinct from the kayak, which is always a, a one-person right. uh, vessel with closed decks. The umiak is open, and you can have more than one passenger right. in it. Um, so that was the first um, piece. And then the second excerpt that I had picked out is about the other dog. So Because there are two main dogs, I think. Yeah, they're brothers. They're brothers, mm-hmm. and they and they each have a role to play in the larger story. So I'll just again read, and then uh, we'll talk a little bit about it. The dogs knew each other. In between sledging seasons, their owner had left his animals on a small island, and in that universe of rock and dwarf willow, Kajortok had often helped his team leader put the white dog in his place. But their leader was gone. Kajortok had watched him led onto the alert with a handful of others, and now he had no one to tell him how or when to start his own fights. His mouth was still full of seal ribs. If he bit the other dog, he might lose them. He hesitated, then chose to ignore the theft. Other hostilities flared, all of them bloodless. Leaving the dogs to work things out between themselves, Hans joined his children. Though he smiled at Charlie, there was already something slow and sad about his footsteps. Erkasaut went over to lick his brother's jaw. If Erkasaut's mind was always running back and forth, over what was going on, what it all meant, what they should do. His brother had a mind that went only deeper into what had happened, gnawing the past like a winter bone. It was for this inward gaze that the hunter had given him his name, Erkaiva, memory. Uh, so we have Thought is the first dog, the second dog is called Memory, which obviously has a kind of potential. Right, which yeah. is, I guess, explored in the rest of the book, which we'll have to read to read another time. <laughs> when Mir is done writing it. <laughs> yeah. So, um, the, the, the names are in Inuktitut, is that right? Or something like that? Yeah, they're, they're in the Greenlandic language. And so, Kajartok is another dog? Yeah. yeah uh, there, there were, in total, they had 25 dogs, all right. cramped together in the forecastle area of the ship's deck, um, which you can imagine was just a, such an alien environment for them. Right. Um, and the Alert, of course, is another ship. Mm-hmm. The one they're on is called... The Discovery. The Discovery, So it was right. a two-ship expedition. Right. Um, yeah. pl- planning to eventually... Their plan was to make it to the North Pole. Um, right. And uh, so I was thinking this this point where Hans is slightly sad in his footsteps because he has to leave his children behind. Is that right? Yes. So Hans Hans is the human character of the novel, and he's the one, um, he's the Greenlander uh, who gets hired on board to take care of the dogs. And when he hired on to work with them, um, it would have left all of his children at home with his wife, who didn't have the means to take care of them. So they actually took some of the children up the coast to foster them out with other families. Right. So this was part of, I, I think, the realities of life 
in Greenland, which was a pretty harsh environment um, it, then and now. And you spent time in the north, right? So this is all yeah. grounded in a certain experience of these this culture, mm-hmm. even though obviously you weren't there in the 1870s. No, and I haven't been on the, I haven't, I haven't been on the Greenland side, but I have um, been around uh, Baffin Bay in a in a ship myself. So, yeah. So that was a, a a snippet of some of the work that uh, I've done and you've done. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh... and the work in progress, which we're hoping, um, we're looking forward to being able to share with you more fully when it's finished. How it's going, <laughs> and how it's going to be published and all the rest of it. Next time we're going to do, uh, we've set up a, so in order to sort of uh, extend the work that we've been doing together mm-hmm. in our interviews, yeah. we're now looking at involving other people in this process of talking about writing. Yeah, so next time we actually have a, a special guest. Um, her name is, is Karen Murray Bergquist, and she's a playwright, um, a folklorist, and a writer of fiction. And she's going to be sharing with us about her own writing experience and practice. Right, so, and this is the first interview, and we have a series of other interviews that we're in the processes of preparing as well. So if you like what you see, don't forget to subscribe to our YouTube channel uh, and see you next time. Yep. See you. Bye-bye.